Welcome to Health System CIO's Partner Perspective Interview Series. I'm Anthony Guerra, founder and editor-in-chief. Today, we're talking with Drex DeFord, executive healthcare strategist with CrowdStrike. Drex, thanks for joining me. Hey, happy to be here. Always a good time talking to you. I should hope so. I should hope so. My very good old friend. Uh, looking forward to this a lot. Um, so let's start out. Tell me a little bit about CrowdStrike and your role there. Sure. So I'm, uh, as you said, the executive healthcare strategist at CrowdStrike. Sort of an interesting uh, path maybe uh, to to get here. CrowdStrike is a one of the world's largest cybersecurity companies. We have a healthcare vertical. That healthcare vertical was started about five years ago. <clears throat> so my career path, as you know, but as some of the listeners might not know, is as a lo- longtime healthcare CIO, 20 years in the U.S. Air Force, CIO at small hospitals, large hospitals. I was a hospital administrator, but happened to specialize in, in information services. Uh, was the chief technology officer for Air Force Health's worldwide operations in D.C. before I retired. Then I went to Scripps and then Seattle Children's and then Steward Healthcare as CIO. Became an independent consultant. And it turned out that sort of not not intentionally, but I wound up sort of having several cybersecurity companies as clients. Um, and one of those was CrowdStrike as they started the healthcare vertical. So I've kind of been involved in the CrowdStrike healthcare vertical from the beginning uh, you know, I don't want to do a commercial about the product set and all the things that it does, but I mean, ultimately it sort of boils down to, um, I have a, I have a very, uh, definitely not boring job mm-hmm. to help stop breaches and to help healthcare organizations drive better, faster, cheaper, safer, easier access care and more resilient operations, ultimately in support of patients and families. And so the, the we stop breaches is really the core of what CrowdStrike mm-hmm. is. Uh, so you, when you were coming up as a CIO, is it safe to say that the CISO role was not popular, was not in effect back then, and therefore CIOs essentially functioned as CISOs and therefore um, they were quite security savvy. Um, there, there was uh, definitely a long period of time where I think those jobs were consolidated. Um, but over time, I think really, you know, as I got into the later years of my uh, uh, my U.S. Air Force uh, job, uh, there were more and more CISOs separate from CTOs, separate from CIOs. Mm-hmm. And then once I went to Scripps Health, uh, we had a, a completely separate CISO and the CISO actually uh, didn't even work in the information services department. They were part mm. of the compliance team. I had security operations folks on my team um, that I had responsibility for, but the but the CISO and a lot of the policy risk management conversations, those things happened um, in sort of a model that kept the fox from watching the hen house, which was a model that I I really liked. So you did like the, having the CISO not in IT. You liked them over in compliance. You thought that worked? I, I thought I thought it worked um, mostly because at one point when when I was in DC, I had a CISO. The CISO worked for me as the chief technology officer, and I realized that sometimes, not intentionally, but because I wrote that person's ticket right, because I wrote their annual review, 
um, there were times when that person would, you know, be in conversations with us in the team and, you know, we'd say something about like, well, I think we're going to have to slip this project because we have some security requirements that we're not going to meet. So it's going to take us another 30 days to sort of get that done. And you would see this, the uncomfortableness in, in the CISO, uh, not wanting to, um, not wanting to upset the apple cart and not that their job is to upset the apple cart, but I don't, I never really wanted to put them in that position mm-hmm. where it was, it was even sort of felt like, or was implied that I was, I was asking them to do something that, that they didn't want to do that. They didn't think was right. That put the organization at risk. So having them separate um, seems like a, a really good idea. I will tell you over time though, as security operations uh, has uh, grown and changed as the CISO's job has grown and changed and as we have, you know, deployed electronic health records and tons of, tons of other digital health stuff, um, those jobs have really almost in the, you know, everything starts here and goes all the way around the circle and comes back. Those jobs in a lot of ways now have consolidated again. So I see a lot of CISOs slash CTOs um, working in healthcare organizations. Some of that has to do with tons and tons and tons of security operations stuff like patching and other things that needs to happen in the CTOs department. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and so having a joint title and a single person at the top creates a situation where they can prioritize security work where they might not have prioritized that work otherwise. So I think ultimately what it boils down to, it doesn't matter Mm. the CISO reports. I think it ultimately boils down to what's the respect and the structure in the organization that allows the work to get done the way it should get done um, without excess undue influence from folks in the organization who, who might, you know, cause a challenge or a problem when it comes to cybersecurity. Right. Right. It's uh, so um, a lot of them, I mean, I think probably from the ones I've talked to, you're probably talking 80 to 90% reporting to the CIO. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like that's accurate? Mm-hmm. I, I would say, yeah, I would say at least half, but maybe more than half. Um, and then the other half is kind of scattered across the organization, right? They might report to the CFO that sometimes they report to legal very often to in the compliance chain of command somewhere. So you just need respect, right? As if you were the CIO who has the CISO reporting up to you, even though you could perhaps run roughshod over them and push through your innovation things, you know, you're, you, you're tied to innovation a lot these days, right? How right. are you using tools? So that there is a hard charging element to that. Right. And the CISO is the one saying, slow down. And if they use, you said they're reporting up to you, you have to be sensitive to that. You may be able to run roughshod over them, but a good CISO won't stay for that. They'll leave. Yeah. Uh, and you are creating risks for the organization. So you're not really doing your job if you're running roughshod over the CISO. Yeah. I think if you got the CISO, uh, the compliance team, and uh, you know the information services leader, the CIO, or the chief digital officer working together yeah. very closely, the reporting relationship probably doesn't matter that much. It doesn't matter that much. All right. Interesting stuff. So you're out there, you're talking to a lot of these folks as you're dealing with customers, prospective customers. What are some of the main things you're hearing right now that they're grappling with? 
Yeah. You know, I mean, so I spend time with certainly prospective customers, but I spend a lot of time with our existing customers too. Uh, and a lot of our conversations go, as you can imagine, in a lot of different directions mm-hmm. because of just my background and experience. So we talk about cybersecurity stuff. We talk about a lot of other things. Um, and certainly margins are tight right now. We hear a lot of conversations about margins. Uh, you know, how how is the organization thinking about driving to better value? Uh, the conversations around consolidation of multiple products, not just in the security suite, but, you know, sort of the whole uh, application harmonization, consolidation uh, process. Um, we see more and more partnering, partnering for uh, kind of everything, this sort of co-sourcing environment, everything from apps, obviously, to cybersecurity in our case. And then, um, you know, organizations who just realize that they they really need to disrupt themselves. They need to do things differently, but change is scary. And so that's a challenge that a lot of them are facing. Uh, risk, obviously, is high kind of across the board uh, from a cyber perspective, absolutely. Um, but risk is high for a lot of other reasons, too. There are a lot of big digital health programs or projects that uh, have been fielded or have been delayed and are being reevaluated. There's risk in all of that. Uh, there's a ton of merger and acquisition uh, going on right now, and that's hard to do well. So risk is an important part of every conversation, including who owns the risk. And then all of that kind of wraps together in a bunch of different ways. Um, I see a lot more conversations about uh, cloud and uh commitment to, you know, the cloud, the decision that, you know, we we are in this sort of sense of disruption. Uh, we are going to get out of the data center. We're going to get out of the data center as much as we can. Feels like the hybrid environment is here to stay and, um, and, and cloud will continue to grow. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, change, I think, happening in healthcare right now. Let's start by going <laughs> a little bit more into the, the tight margins. Um, this is real, right, on the ground. Mm. And how does this manifest itself uh, specifically, like in a scenario, you're a CIO or a CISO, as the economic conditions change and worsen, what happens? Is it is it a regular budget meeting where your CFO says, hey, uh, I need you to cut back on what you're spending? Or is it when you present the next budget and they say you got to reduce this by 30%? How does this trickle down to the healthcare IT executive, and then uh, in everything, there's positive and negative ways to react or deal with that. So when you're, how do the orders come down, mm. and then and then what's a good way and what's a bad way to react? <laughs> right. Um, how do the orders come down? So that probably varies by organization, but based on the conversations that I'm having right now, it used to be that we did an annual budget, we submitted an annual budget, and then sometime during that annual budget process, we justified the things that we needed to spend money on and that got approved or disapproved. And then we executed on that. And then we came back next year with another annual budget. In the meantime, there might be a few things that would happen over the course of that budget. We would have conversations with the CFO or board or other teams um, as needed. And uh, But mostly we were in control of our budget. And it feels like today, the budget cycle like kind of doesn't end, right? There's an annual budget that you submit, but the feeling I get as I talk to a lot of CISOs and CIOs is that 
um, you know, th- there may almost be like a monthly review of the budget now with the finance team, with the CFO's team. So, you know, what are, what are we spending our money on? Do we really need to spend this? Can we delay it? There's a lot of there's a lot of those kind of conversations uh, that are going on, <clears throat> and that can be super frustrating, right? For for executives who are executors and want to get things done, this feels like a pretty major uh, administrative uh, finance exercise. But mm-hmm. I think in the core of it. When you talk about like how do you react to it and how do you um, you know how do you deal with it, mm-hmm. a lot of it is really just I think you know being calm and put on your business hat and be the business person. I think you be super you just you're super transparent about everything that's going on. Here's how we're spending our money. These are the things that are coming up this month. These are the things that are coming up this quarter. Uh, here's new requirements that have dropped in on me for one reason or another. It could be regulation. It could be, you know, something else. Uh, things break. If you're a CIO, you know, in your domain, things break and you have to sort of uh, keep up on that, but just being really, really transparent. And then I think being really transparent and demonstrating again and again and again to the to the finance team and the CFO that you're doing everything you can to improve your operations, to squeeze out every dollar, to disrupt yourself, to do the things you need to do to make sure that you're providing great service and great capabilities to business clinical and research operators, but you're doing it in the most efficient way possible that, 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 you you know, you can, that you can come up with. Um, Good governance is obviously a huge part of this. Uh, A big challenge in every health system that I've ever you know, been to in the early stages of the conversation when I just arrived, a lot of it has to do with governance or lack of governance. Mm-hmm. They may say they have a governance process in place, they have a list of projects, but it's not, you know, it can be a challenge, everything from just managing those projects well and making sure they're implementing, they're implemented on time and that they have good business sponsors and good business plans and all of that. But it can be all the way through just Sometimes in organizations, when you say no in the governance process, that's almost permission for those departments to go out and try to do something on their own. And, you know, that that leakage, that challenge of pulling resources away from what needs to be done and has been approved to other sorts of projects, those little um, subversive in some ways, operations to the governance process can uh, can be a, a a real challenge. And then, uh, you know, I know ROI and you know value documentation can be a real challenge to do, but I think they're incredibly important. So, in the governance process and in the transparency process, a lot of this has to be solid business plans and um, you know work those plans with your clinical business and research operators so that they've got really good plans most of the projects that information services has uh, it projects are not really it projects they are business clinical or research projects that are supported heavily by the information services team because there are information services components of it but the things that cause those projects ultimately uh, in large part, to be delayed or or to fail or to have cost overruns are the people and process components, which are owned by the by the business clinical or research leaders who really should be pulling those projects into place. And so a lot of this, again, comes back to sort of governance and transparency, helping everybody understand what's really needed for 
the department to run as efficiently as possible. And the realization, I think also that most of the stuff that we run in information services, we run for someone else. So the, the across the board, cut this by 10% should then become a conversation with business clinical and research operators, leaders around what 10% do you want me to cut? Because it can't be an independent decision on your part. You really have to co-opt them into it. And by doing that, you'll also get good support, good teammates who will, you know, help root for the cause when it comes to budget challenges. So when we're talking about governance here, we're talking about the the business deciding how IT dollars are going to be spent and which projects are going to be funded, correct? Yeah. I mean, prioritization in general, right? So in the places where I've been, we always had sort of consolidated governance process. There was a sub process for for facilities. There was one usually, I mean, this is mostly built around the CapEx model, right? But there was a project for facilities. There was one for uh, medical equipment and there was one for information services. And then we had sort of like a joint session of governance where we made decisions and re-looked at our decisions on a very regular basis, kind of saying, we're we have the resources to do the projects down to this line. So everything above the line we're going to do mm-hmm. and everything below the line, even though they're really great ideas, don't get us wrong. These are not <laughs> stupid ideas. Some right. of them feel like they're no brainers, but we're going to actively say no to the things below the line. And this governance process is not just about the prioritization. It's also about sending the message out to the organization that the things below the line that we've actively said no to I need everyone in the organization to say no to those projects. Don't uh-huh. spin off a little thing on your own to to do this, you know, uh, on the down low. That's not that's not what the governance process. It's not what the leadership of the organization wants. And so this is a lot about helping people stay focused in an environment that doesn't have the resources to do everything that everyone wants. And that's a really hard thing for us in healthcare. I think it's a hard thing for a lot of a lot of businesses in general. And I think it's a it's a hard thing for a lot of people individually. It's why we carry so much uh, credit card debt and you know other things sometimes even personally. Um, but it really is just about prioritization, first things first being really clear about what you're going to do, what you're really going to put your shoulder against, and then being really clear about the things that you are not going to do right now or yet, right? And some of those things can be like, we're not going to spend money on this thing below the line. But if you want to put effort into improving the processes that are tied to this thing that you want to buy, you should absolutely go ahead and do that. Mm -hmm. Because that might more clearly define the technology that we need to improve that process, right? Mm-hmm. That means may mean ultimately it costs less money because you've improved the process right. so much that really you figured out just the tiny thing that really needs to be automated instead of having this giant project. And that may get above the line and be right. something that we can do. So the governance process is complicated. As an independent consultant, I spent a lot of time with health systems and other companies working through governance. It's kind of one of my favorite things. Who, uh, who, 
who designs the governance process? So is it the CIO who's designing that process? Or if you come into an organization, and I've heard this as well from other CIOs who come in somewhere and say there was no governance. I had to build the governance. Mm -hmm. um, so if you either are building it or if you're at a place where it's suboptimal, you're saying we've got a governance process, but this doesn't work. This isn't getting us where we need to be. Mm -hmm. um, is it the CIO? Do they have the ability to redefine that, to reimagine that? Or or does that have to be sort of CEO level stuff? I mean, ultimately, you want to get the CEO on board with it. Um, if you don't have a governance process, uh, sometimes it's, you know, sitting down with the CEO and uh, walking through the whole governance conversation, what it is and what it means and how it works. And does this solve some of the problems that you see that are sort of chronic problems in the organization? Uh, for me, often these were conversations during the interview process. Mm -hmm. As I came to the organization, I asked a lot of questions about governance and how mm -hmm. they prioritized and how they decided what they weren't going to do. And what I often heard in those interviews, you know, and often it was part of the reason that I took the job is that, yeah, we don't do that well. We struggle with that a lot. And, um, you know, how, how have you seen it done, right? And so, you know, when you start to get those kind of questions, that you really have an opportunity to lead on that. And right. uh, it, it's it's the same, not just with governance, but with, you know, lots of things as a information services leader, as a CIO or chief digital officer, you have interesting opportunities because of the way the CIO job, CDO job works, you have your fingers in so many pies across the organization. You can find opportunities to help the organization run more efficiently and become better stewards for the dollars and the resources that they have. And then, you know, if you lean into that, I think that's the reason that you have seen uh, more and more progression of. CIOs to chief digital officers, maybe to chief operating officers or having other clinical or uh, business operations responsibilities beside traditional uh, CIO jobs. And then, you know, some of them, you know, moving up into the big job. I think you just get a great view of the world from the CIO seat and from the CISO seat, too. I mean, you know, they're involved in everything. Right. Well, there's a lot of connections here. Um, and let me take you through this progression in my mind. We just talked a lot about governance, important that is, and that's deciding what we're going to spend our IT dollars on and make sure the business is the one essentially making those decisions, right? I'm here to support you, empower you. What do you want to do uh, based on the, the money that we have? And then from a conversation of governance, you touched on the problem of, I guess we'll call it shadow IT is, mm. is a popular term. Right. So somebody is told you're under the line. We're sorry. We loved your project, but you're under the line. <laughs> it has to be reinforced. Well, guys, this doesn't mean you get to say, well, I'll go do it on my own because mm -hmm. it's never ultimately on your own. Right. It's going to hit IT. Mm -hmm. So you may go buy it, but if it plugs in or it's got to boot up, it's going to hit us and we don't want it right now. The organization doesn't want it. So you've got a connection there to shadow IT. Let's talk a little mm -hmm. bit about that first. And uh, does everyone have their own budget? Do all these departments have their own budget? Meaning, you know, you don't want to pay for it. Fine. I'll go, we'll go pay for it. And, you know, all of a sudden it's going to pop up on the network from one of your monitoring tools. It's going to show, Oh, this is this new thing on the network or, or maybe if it's an app, it works differently, but 
Um, talk a little bit about that, about the shadow IT issue, the departmental buying, and that all is going to impact security and application rationally. It all ties in. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, the, the, you've heard me say this before, and it sounds very uh, cliche, but um, everything is connected to everything else. Absolutely. So in this governance process, conversations with supply chain, governing uh, conversations with the finance team, uh, saying anything that comes through that looks like it's an attempt to buy or pay for something that might have an IT smell, <laughs> um, send that over to us. We need to see it, right? So this is where you start to create the, the situation where you have <clears throat> some line of sight to um, the things that are that are happening. Most of the time, when you show up as a new CIO or new CISO to an organization that is in the turnaround process or has been in in a bit of turmoil, you show up in a, into a situation where there are hobby shops, there are shadow IT departments. Um, so you're kind of starting off already in that situation. The right way to do that, in my opinion, you know, from my experience has been not immediately try to go in and say, we're shutting down all the shadow IT. It becomes a, I need to know and understand what you're doing and why you're doing it. I'm not going to try to shut it down, but we need to understand the things that you're doing and why you're doing it so that we can build the capacity to support you. And what happens over time is that as you understand that, as you invite those individuals who are running those shadow IT departments to your information services department meeting and make them feel like part of the team, and they start to see the improvements in the information services department and the way that you work and the way that you run operations, the way that you manage security, they will come to you uh, fairly quickly and say, I never really wanted to do this. Can you take it off my hands? <laughs> And that turns into a conversation around, yep, we can, but we also need the resources that you've expended on that. We need, you know, those need to transfer into our budget. Potentially FTEs need to transfer into our budget. And so you can slowly but surely make progress and sort of decomposing this mm -hmm. shadow IT um, world, but you're never going to get rid of all of it, I don't think. And in some cases, it's probably good that some of those departments have their own services and their own capabilities. That gets into another conversation then. Um, sometimes for the CISO, it's, look, the only reason I have to do this particular piece of work is to secure this PCI thing or this other thing that you're doing in your department. Um, how about I bill you like a utility to support that piece of work that I have to do from a cybersecurity perspective to you know take care of your application? You may get pushback on that. So the next conversation is, let's talk about if you didn't have support from us for that piece of work, how much revenue would the organization lose because you'd have to take that offline? That becomes the business plan, right? This becomes the, what's the value of what we do? What's the work that we do contributes what to revenue bottom line or to, you know, whatever the metrics or the measures or the KPIs are that that department has. So, you know, a lot of this is like, don't get mad and thrash and be emotional. A lot of it is just take a step back and take a breath and, most of you went to business school or some version of business school, like 
use the things that you've learned over your academic career, use the things you've learned over the course of your information services career and, you know, find some good solutions for everyone. They're there. You just sometimes have to dig for them, right? So you're definitely not the sort of hard and fast rules, shut it down, shut it off, can't turn it on. You're you're more of a, let's have a discussion. Let's find out where people are coming from and let's yeah. try and move in a direction that we want to move in. Yeah. I mean, if we can, if we know it's there and we can see it, we can start to definitely have conversations about securing it. And then we start to have conversations about how do we spin it down? And it it can be, you know, you can, you can run a whole project around turning all the, all the shadow IT off. Um, or as you improve performance, I guarantee you a lot of those shadow IT departments will come to you and say, can you please, it looks like you have your act together. Please take this. I never really wanted to do it in the first place. The only reason we started doing it was because your department couldn't and they will, they will offload it. And then it's a resource conversation, mm-hmm. right? So do you think that the so third party application reviews are are becoming a huge challenge for CIOs and especially CISOs, the this the risk review of somebody wants to, you know, buy something or or use an app, a new tool. Um, and I've heard that those numbers are really high. Those reviews are, you know, they're flooding in um, and that delays are not, you know, appreciated by the business users. They want to know right away. It can't just go into some black hole and they never hear back. It can't be two months. It's yeah. got to be. So this is a big challenge. Um, and I guess it, is this related to cloud um, because it, the shadow IT challenges are exacerbated by cloud because it's mm-hmm. easier to just, you know, put your credit mm-hmm. card out. Right. And then I, I don't even sort of need you so much anymore because it's not yeah. going in your data center. I'll just log on. Right. I just bought a license and I log on and and uh, and that type of thing. So the relationship there between cloud uh, third party app review and this all sort of increasing in uh, volume and causing some issues. Yeah. Now, man, there's a lot to unpack there, but yes, absolutely. Uh, we see um, shadow IT has become easier to do because you can do it with a credit card now. Thus, my sort of reference to make sure you're working with your finance folks. And as they see credit card receipts come across from departments, if there are things that look like they're IT, we need to talk about it. Um, it allows you to sort of catch things early and then have a conversation before <clears throat> the department gets too addicted to whatever it is they've decided to do as a one-off thing uh, with a credit card. Um, but when it comes to third-party risk review, I mean, you can go to the HHS wall of shame and you know do a sort on how many of the breaches um, that are shown on the wall of shame are tied to business associates, and it's a significant number. So uh, that is a risk that continues to grow for a lot of reasons, right? I think as we become more and more mature uh, in healthcare and we start to say, okay, I'm not going to run all of this in my data center. I am going to run it in another place. Uh, Cloud definition, what do we mean by cloud? sort of fits on a spectrum now, right? There's sort of the, on the left end of the spectrum is kind of Office 365. It doesn't run in our data center anymore. It runs in the cloud. It's not really a cloud, you know, by traditional kind of like cloud workload, but it's a thing that we don't, we don't do here. That's cloud, right? right? right. And then 
sort of a little bit to the right of that are the, you know, the applications, the software as a service stuff that we do. And that can include things like electronic health record hosting and, and other stuff. We don't do that here. So that's in the cloud. And then there's, you know, on the far, far right side, there's sort of the real traditional cloud workload um, kinds of things. I think healthcare mostly is sort of in the in the middle of this sort of continuum right now, a lot of work around uh, moving stuff off premise and into the software as a service um, kind of world. Some cases moving into the more traditional uh, hardcore cloud workload stuff. The reality is in all of that though, uh, there's the security of the cloud and there's the security in the cloud. You don't lose your responsibility for security just because you've moved it somewhere else, right? And that's why third-party risk management programs turn out to be really, really important right now. And they take a lot of time. They take a lot of effort. Uh, There are partners that you can work with, not CrowdStrike in particular, but there are some really great partners out there that you can work with that can help you with your third-party risk management programs. But understanding how those software as a service partners work, how they secure um, their environment, what the products are that they use. And this isn't a one-time event, right? Once you've sort of checked them out and vetted them to say, it's okay if we use them, or if we make that investment in a partnership, you have to continue to stay on top of that because Mm -hmm. the threats change, the environment changes, how they're doing their business and their backends change. And you need to be able to stay on top of that. Really hard to do, right? Because most organizations have sometimes hundreds of these things running, but they really need a program to be able to to stay on top of them because that's a route into your organization. So that's one concern. You're a route out of your organization to them. So in many ways, you know, they, you want, you want to make sure that, that they're secure and they want to make sure that you're secure. The other challenge in all this too, is not just the pure cybersecurity aspect of it, but often you're, well, not often, in almost all those cases, you're putting data in their cloud, right? In their application. Uh, You're probably not alone if they're smart, and this is a good business model. They have several healthcare customers who are using their cloud. And uh, so it makes their cloud a real target for adversaries too, because they only have to bust into one organization to get access to multiple health systems data. Mm-hmm. And so um, as a group, you all should be working together on individual vendors to make sure that they're you know secure and doing the things that they should do to secure your data. And then you know, the last thing I'd say about it is that you are moving data out there. Do you know what that data is? Do you know what kind of data you have at risk in each of those applications? It's part of the third-party risk management program, but data management in general is something that a lot of health systems struggle with, uh, understanding where their data is, what data is at risk, you know, where it's stored, how it's moved, how it's consolidated from multiple applications into a a database or a spreadsheet that's used by an individual department. And as it turns out, that spreadsheet could be the real crown jewels of the organization. We're used to securing individual applications, but because of the reporting that we pulled 
you know, that a that a frontline manager has pulled out of those individual applications and consolidated into a spreadsheet, that turns out to be an incredibly valuable asset. And you may not even know that it exists on a shared drive mm-hmm. somewhere. So there's a lot of challenges for healthcare today uh, when it comes to cybersecurity, data management, third-party risk management. So interesting. I like the way you you laid it out with sort of the spectrum. Of, of cloud. Oh, cloud, um, right. Yeah, yeah. That, that made a lot of sense. Um, so, for example, um, let's use Cerner as an example, because, you know, I think they were one of the first to to offer hosting your instance in their data center, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of that middle ground, right? You're in the cloud, but you're in Cerner's cloud. You're not managing it yourself, per se, and that's part of why it's attractive. It's not right. in your data center. It's on. It's in their data center. Now you have to worry about the pipes going in and out. What data is there? What data is here? How's it moving back and forth? Make sure that if you have open pipes between the organizations that you're monitoring the traffic and anything coming in is safe and secure because if they were to get breached, they would, and you have open pipes, so to speak, you have access to your organization, mm-hmm. right? So that's that's one situation uh, where there's some risk. But then I think on the other end, the far end of the spectrum, you talked about um, and that's where you might be in one of the big three, sort of renting space, as it were, in their cloud, and you are managing that yourself, yeah. correct? Yeah, so that's yeah. where it's, you really better know what you're doing because you're out there kind of really managing this instance. And if you um, if you structure it wrong, if you configure it wrong, you could have an open door from yeah. a security point of view. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, we see... Um, it, it it is a continuum, right? It is a progression that I think most health systems make over time. And when they get to the right side, the right end of that spectrum, the you know AWSs or Azure mm-hmm. or Googles of the world, as they start to actually make the decision to move workloads there and manage those workloads themselves, uh, this is a special skill. It's a special talent. Um, you may have amazing people that are really great at running on-premise solutions and on-premise servers and on-premise workloads. Um, The cloud is different and um, takes special skill to run well and manage well because you're, you know, spinning instances up and down, you're spinning workloads up and down. And it's really easy to have a misconfiguration. We know that there are lots of adversaries who are constantly looking at the cloud, trying to find those workload instances, those, those, uh, installations in the cloud where a misconfiguration has occurred and that gives them access to not only the cloud, but often allows them to path back into um, the organization. So it's not a rare thing. It's actually a very common thing. And I would say that from a cybersecurity perspective, make sure you're working with partners who can see that whole continuum from the frontline endpoint through server, through cloud, and can help identify not only, you know, indicators of compromise, something really going on that's bad and needs to be resolved right away, indicators of attack, those things where um, there are particular behaviors that would lead you to believe that there is an attack underway so that you can cut it off, but also indicators of misconfiguration, um, because those are just the simple things that are are easy to overlook, especially if you don't have experience in the cloud and you're just initially making those moves. Um, you know, work with partners who can help you secure 
that environment, that whole environment. Let's talk about now we, dealing with people is the hard stuff, right? Especially for technology folks with anybody. Change and human beings hard, very hard, right. very absolutely. <laughs> that's absolutely that's very, very unpleasant <laughs> stuff, right? When you're managing people. So we talked yeah. about how the cloud skills are unique skills. Right. And and if, if most people develop their team or the team was developed, people stay in healthcare a long time. 20, 30 years is not mm-hmm. odd. Um, so if you are a CIO or a CISO and you've got this wonderful team of happy people and you've had fun parties, company parties with them for the last 30 years, and you need a different skill set because you feel like you wanna you wanna do some of this stuff, this cloud stuff. What is the best way as a manager, in your point of view, to try and at least give folks the opportunity to learn some new skills? You first, you have to say, who do the people on my team have the ability and aptitude, willingness to change? Well, I think anybody has a shot at this. Okay, let me give them an opportunity. There may be certain skill sets where you say, I don't think anybody over here is going to, I'm going to bring somebody new in. I need to bring some, or I want to outsource some stuff. And mm-hmm. we'll get into that about managed services, how important that is today, and mm-hmm. when to bring that in, when to leverage managed services. So as a leader, what's your best advice for reskilling, upskilling, adjusting your team, remembering these are human beings that we have relationships with and we want to like try, yeah. right? We want to be somewhat sensitive. What's your best advice there? Yeah, I mean, you know your team uh, better than anyone else. And I think it is spending time with them and understanding what they are capable of and what do they want to do, right? That can be the other challenge is that um, there may be way better ways to manage the work that's of higher value and lower cost than the way that they do it today. Um, Part of that challenge as a leader, and I've already mentioned disruption, but you have to be disruptive yourself. Um, just because your team wants to continue to do a particular piece of work, if that's not the right decision for the organization, you may have to disrupt that. And I think that includes giving them opportunities to change, giving them all the opportunities that you can to upscale and change their skills. Um, some of them will be up for it. Some of them may not. If they're up for it, you know, you do your best to give them the right kind of training and help them. Uh, make that transition. You may take some of that work, like you said, and co-source it or or transfer, you know, that some of that kind of work to partners. But from our perspective, that's never an outsourcing conversation. That really is a co-sourcing conversation, right? That's about taking things that are just run more efficiently outside the organization and letting them run outside the organization in many ways so that you can take the people that you have on your team and let them upskill to the really hard stuff that you need to do um, inside the inside the the hospital or inside the the health system. And so it, it is a hard conversation. It is a tough conversation. I think you have to look at all of the resources that you have, the human resources, your your partners, and you know new capabilities that you may not be using today, and figure out what's the right mix. Um, yeah, they are humans. They 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 are people that you've known and that you've worked with in some cases, maybe for years and years and years. You don't want to leave them behind. But part of this is the leadership and coaching that is helping them maybe do new and different and interesting and, and maybe even harder uh, and more fun work than they do today. 
Well, here's my opinion on this. Uh, I'll weigh in. All right. Let it so, rip. So my my opinion is that it, if you start off by saying these individuals are interested in the success of the organization, let's let's have that as a premise. If we're like wrong it. there, then we have the wrong person, right? If if yeah. we're wrong with that, but let's say if if we start with that premise and we start we say okay, with that as the premise, let me explain why we need to do this. Here is why you want the organization to be. This is what we need to be doing. I want you to come on the journey with me, but I need you to, you know, no longer just punch in the same things you've been punching in on the computer for 30 years. I need you to come with me and learn this new thing. What do you think? Yeah, I I think the transparency part of that is incredibly important, right? We're doing it. It's not random. I'm not just making a one-off decision, right? It's part of a larger strategy, and here's why we're doing it. This is the these are the things that we're trying to protect in the organization. This is the risk that we see in the environment, both internally and externally. Be transparent about that. Um, if people are truly mission focused and mission oriented, you know, to your point, uh, if you have a good plan, they will come along for the for the ride. They will come along for the journey and they'll do the things that they need to do. And I'll, I'll tell you that most of the people I've ever worked with in healthcare, a big part of why, why they're there is patients and families. Yeah. They're super motivated, realizing that in some cases they have been a patient in their past and it's caused them to move into the healthcare industry and try to make healthcare better. Or they have family that have been patients or I mean, I'm, I've been really healthy, you know, knock on wood most of my life, but I know that I'm going to be a patient someday. And I really need the healthcare system to be better than it is today <laughs> when I'm, ad, you know, admitted to a hospital. So for all those reasons, I think, you know, people that are in it for the mission um, can be, even though change is hard for everyone, I think given the right information, given that transparency, they can be flexible and 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 do different things as part of a disruptive process to create better care for patients and families. Yes, and now we can't pretend that everything's going to work out. And I have spoken to you know, I like to ask people. You know, I've spoken to CIOs and said, you know, have you ever had to, you know, get rid of somebody? And they say, well, well, yes. And usually the story goes to the effect of, I did everything that you and I have discussed, Drex. They mm-hmm. did that, mm-hmm. right? They did that, and the person was just. Not, I'm just not <laughs> I don't, I'm not interested. I'm just not coming along for your vision. I'm not coming along for the ride. As a leader, you have to deal with that. You can't let that just be because everyone else is going to see it and, and they're going to say, well, you know, maybe it is a new, new world around here. Maybe I don't need to get on board. Yeah. Yeah. Back to the people process part of it. Right. I mean, I can tell you that um, every place I've been and, you know, been part of a turnaround, there's always been. Uh, I don't know. I've, I use this term. It may not be appropriate, but <laughs> there have always been internal terrorists, right? Okay. Inside the organization, people yeah. that everybody in the organization agrees, uh, they don't fit and they're very disruptive yeah. and that everybody bends over backwards to try to accommodate them because they have some key role in the organization that, if they're not there to push that button every day at two o'clock, the organization will fall apart. Right. right, right. And so, um, you know, you, you talk to them, you try to get them on board, you try to get them in the right place. 
And if they won't come along, uh, you know, I, I've in many cases had to let those folks go. Now, I can tell you what happens when I let them go. Usually what happens is there will be a rush from across the team to me uh, kind of saying, you know, thank goodness, uh, what took so long? Uh, you know, can't can't believe that guy or that person, you know, hung around for that long. You know, they cause chaos everywhere. Um, and then the next breath, they will say, and we'll do anything we need to do to help cover that gap while we sort of figure out maybe what that person was really doing, right? We don't want the organization to fall apart. And so what do we need to do to help you uh, figure that out? And and what you get is a ton of goodwill across the organization. I'll tell you the other thing that I see, you know, right, I've seen regularly myself, but I continue to see in organizations today is that when a CIO goes into an organization, they may get that same feedback about an individual, mm-hmm. but it turns out that individual maybe is really good and working really hard. They've just somehow wound up in the wrong job and it's caused them to act out or have other sort of challenges and issues. And again, mm-hmm. it requires some time sitting down with yeah. the person and understanding what they're doing and how they got into that job. And sometimes a demotion might even be the person will agree Yes. Absolutely. I've just been, I'm just, this is just not the right job for me. Can I just go back? I was a great 100%. analyst, right? And you move them back into those roles. You do something else with them. You give them a different job and they turn out to be, you know, five-star performers. Um, you just have to find the right, the right spot. So don't assume that when you go in, somebody who is an irritant to everyone is an internal terrorist and has to go it requires a little exploration. And it could turn out to be that, you know, that person is a rock star. They're just hammering at the wrong rock right now. So absolutely great advice. I want yeah. to ask you one more question before I let you go. We're way over, but I've enjoyed this too much. Yeah. Um, if if Drex DeFord is taking over as, you know, let's let's make you a CISO um, at a sizable health system in the country. Let's give you, I don't know, let's give you 10 hospitals. Um, and you're, you're taking over, um, what are your first 90 days look like? What do you want to, what do you want to check out? What do you want to, maybe some of the things you say, these things are super critical. So I got to make sure these things are, you know, not, not in a red light situation. I'm going to check these and then I'm going to do this or that. What are your first, you know, whatever days look like? Yeah. Um, you know, I probably, I would probably do what I have, you know, kind of always done in those new situations. And that's, you know, kind of inventory, uh, what's there, who are the people, what's the situation look like? You try to get the lay of the land uh, as quickly as possible. You look inside the department, you look outside the department, you talk to other folks who have an opinion about how your department runs and what's good and, and what's bad. Um, you immediately start looking for opportunities for efficiencies. You know, how do I create opportunity for the people that are there mm-hmm. who seem like they're a good fit to work at the top of their license? So what can I take off their plate and, and, and transition? I mean, especially the, the boring work or the stuff that, uh, that they need, um, they need help with because it bogs them down, right? Mm-hmm. I'm going to try to get those things off their plate. And that may mean investment in partners to to do some of that work so that I can push my team's skills to the top of their license. Um, and I want to make sure that the work that we're doing really does map to our digital health investments, uh, 
clinical business research operations and that we're protecting those assets. Um, that probably would inform much more of a hybrid strategy if I went into a, a random 10 hospital health system today. Uh, I probably would be thinking hard about the cloud and what are we going to move to the cloud and somewhere on that spectrum in that inventory, where mm -hmm. are we in that cloud journey? And then that sort of creates the plan for timelines and business plans and ROI and value realization expectations that I would have for the plan that I would put together. And then ultimately the process that I would use to report out on our ability to actually achieve those capabilities. And I, you know, try to do all that in the structure of a governance process. If one didn't exist or if one existed, I'd probably try to change it to make it easier to understand and to be more participative for business clinical and research operators. But I mean, it's, it's, a, you know, it's a good, it's a good theoretical. I would say that's what I've done. Mm -hmm. Every place that I've gone is something like that. So I probably would take a very similar approach and see, uh, you know, once you get something off the ground for 90 days or a hundred days, you kind of see how it works. And then you adjust a big part of all of this is, you know, I don't want to build monuments that I can't move as part of that design. I want to create a very agile, uh, my teams have heard me refer to Simper Gumby, always flexible, right? I mm. ter Terrible Latin, but, uh, you know, made up, <laughs> made up Latin, but Simper Gumby. So this idea that I'm going to build a structure that we can change and move and adjust quickly because the environment that we're in today in healthcare and from a cybersecurity pers perspective, the environment that we're in today is changing so fast that you basically have to build something that can move faster than the changing environment, faster than the adversary in, in cybersecurity perspective. So uh, if you can do that, then you've built a good plan, you've built a good program, you've built a good department, and you're going to be successful at your mission. If you have a bunch of anchors that are going to hold you back, it's going to create a situation where there's going to be a lot of stress and strain where maybe it's just not necessary. And and you relate that flexibility to cloud. A lot of people talk about that when they talk. I about mean, cloud. I th I think it can be, uh, you know, back to people process technology. I think the technology is obviously an important part of this, um, but a lot of it is the people process part too. How how are we going to build structures to make decisions about the work that we're, you know, the governance structure, the work that we're going to do, and the work that we're not going to do? Cloud certainly gives you a lot of flexibility. Um, but as with everything, all good things come with a different set of risks. You need to understand those. You need to be able to to uh, to deal and cope with those. But I think it gives you a lot of flexibility that on-prem doesn't today. All right, Drex, that's about all we had time for today. Great conversation. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. This is one of the best interviews I've ever done, Anthony. <laughs> I I paid him to say that, folks. I paid him to say that. So I'll say I'll Venmo you my the twenty dollars. Thank you, buddy. I Thanks, buddy. It.